The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, test, test, this thing on? Turn your iPod up to 11 and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 451 with guest Daniel Simmons, recorded live Thursday, May 27, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who thinks Microsoft should have called it badabing.com, Carl Franklin. Thanks very much, Lawrence, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. Hey, Richard, what's happening, my man? Ah, you know, still unpacking, moving, get settled in. I'm back home. That's cool. I'm uh, I'm going to be mixing a pretty good band here in that that came into the studio. You know, we get all kinds of people coming into the studios from like one guy and a guitar who wants to sing a couple of tunes to somebody who just sings to karaoke tracks, and every once in a while we get some some kids some young kids and i swear these guys were like 18 and 19 and man they have their stuff together really practice rehearsed original fresh in the pocket really good band called uh, chasing trinity when i so i'm looking forward to mixing them and uh, when i do maybe i'll maybe i'll play a little bit Definitely. you guys can tell me what you think yeah, cool hey let's get right into better know a framework awesome Better Know Framework, of course, where I shed a little light on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET Framework in hopes that you can, through osmosis, pick up some of this stuff or go check it out in detail at your leisure. And today I'm talking about system.data.entityClient. That's a namespace. Guess what it's for? Hmm, entity client. Mm. Uh, for I'll give you a hint. Who's our guest today? Daniel Sim. Oh, Entity Framework. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you, you, you got me down, Mr. Franklin. <laughs> so the Entity Client Provider uses storage-specific ADO.NET data provider classes and mapping metadata for interacting with entity data models. Entity Client translates operations performed on conceptual entities into operations performed on physical data sources, translates result sets returned from physical data sources into conceptual entities. Hmm, provider model. What a great idea. Those Microsoft guys, they're so clever. Yep. So you got the entity connection, the entity command, entity connection string builder, entity data reader, entity parameter, entity parameter collection, entity provider factory, entity transaction. It's all right there. It's all you need. Amazing. So, Richie, you got an email for us? Nope. <laughs> Every, you know, I just heard like 100,000 people go, yeah, he's not going to read a freaking email today. 
<laughs> oh my god. Well, uh we're going to be at Dev Teach in Vancouver very soon here. Yes, we will. It's next week actually. devteach.com. We're going to be hosting a installathon. Install Fest. What what are they calling it? I think they're calling it Install Fest. Yes. Yeah, Install Fest. We're going to install Visual Studio 2010 and everybody's going to watch us push the next button and go, "Yep. There it goes." And when next? Yep. Well, and I think we got to try and build something in 2010 while we're at it. I well, really want to see the WPF-ness of it all. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. I've got it installed here on a Windows 7 machine. It's pretty sweet. Pretty rocking awesome. sweet. Yeah. Uh, by all means, come out. We're going to be there. We're recording some .NET Rocks. We're going to have a good time. And uh, you can, too. DevTeach.com. Hey, and our friends at Infusion Development in New York City are still looking for talented .NET developers for their offices in London, England, Toronto, Canada, New York City, and Dubai. Yes, that's Dubai, as in the United Arab Emirates, where all good things flow from. So if you're interested in any of those things and, you know, you got the chops to prove it, because they will, they will only take you if you've got chops, uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I'll hook you up. And with that, I think it's time to talk to Dan. Absolutely. Dan Simmons is a dev manager for the Entity Framework and Link to SQL team, where his mission is to build a team and product that will fundamentally change the way we build data-centric software. He's been in Microsoft for 10 years, working on a variety of products. Before coming to Microsoft, he worked as a consultant, founded an ISP, and engaged in various other software pursuits. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks a lot. If Dan Simmons is on the show, it must be Entity Framework Day. It must be. Must Entity be Framework Day is a good day. <laughs> so apparently you have version numbering issues. What is it with you programmers? You have a tough time with numbers like three? Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, some things you just got to make enough more complicated that you keep everyone on their toes. All right. Explain what you people have done now. Yeah. So, you know, we released the first version of the Entity Framework as a part of .NET 3.5 SP1. Yeah. Uh, so we got ready to make the next release, and uh, people started calling it V2. But then it was like, well, which version of .NET does it ship with? Hmm. And so on. And so finally we said, you know what? We're just going to start calling it EF4 because it ships with .NET 4. Right. So we went from 1 to 4. Yeah, not because it's four times as much goodness, although some may claim that. Uh-huh. I might even have a T-shirt to that effect, but <laughs> just to line up the version numbers. Okay, and and we won't do that again. <laughs> this is a one-time thing for this I, I, product. I will let you make that promise. I, I make no such claims. <laughs> I've worked at Microsoft too long for that. Well, yeah. I mean, you've been through enough different Microsoft things. You know, the, the next version is going to be called, yeah. Entity Framework Foundation? Who knows? <laughs> Entity Framework Foundation. <laughs> I like it. It's it's a philanthropic API. There you go. So what are we looking at with the sec- the next version of Entity Framework here, the second version, even though it's version 4? Well, uh, lots of stuff. We actually, uh, sometimes I take a step back when I actually look at the list of all the stuff that went in in what was half of a release cycle for us because we shipped with SP1. Right. Um we were able to really spend a lot of time and tried very hard to focus on feedback that we'd been getting from the community. Mm-hmm. So um, everything from, you know, focusing on persistence ignorance and doing plain old CLR POCO objects, mm. um, doing improved testability, uh, implicit lazy loading, custom code generation using T4, uh, model-first development where you can build your model and then have it create the database for you, uh, interfaces to help with uh, unit testing and TDD, improved uh, generation of the SQL, just a whole whole ton of stuff. Is there one, um, other than the ADONet team blog, is there one site where there's an official sort of entity framework product page other than in the MSDN documentation? There's really um, three kind of blog resources. There's the okay. ADONet team blog, and especially lately with um, Beta 1 coming out of .NET 4 VS 2010, we've just had a whole 
blitzkrieg of posts about all the new things in Entity Framework 4 there. Okay. Then we created this blog we call the EF Design Blog that we've been um, making postings to for this entire release process, even before the first release was shipped, after it was kind of locked down. We started rolling out posts as we were doing design work, and each step along the way, we've been trying to have a very public process that says, here's what we're thinking about, give us feedback so we can kind of make sure that the product is really responding to what people need. And that's at, you know, same kind of place, blogs.msdn.com, EF Design. Mm -hmm. And then on my blog, I keep a frequently asked questions file. Okay. And your blog is? Uh, It's the same thing, blogs.msdn.com slash dsimmons. Okay. And, uh, you know, like I said, it, it's, it's just been this whole massive list of, of all of these different uh, things that we've been trying to get in that really almost all come directly from, from customers asking us for things. And, and the initial responses to, to the beta have been very, very positive, very gratifying. All right. So eager loading. What is this? I don't think so, we've ever talked about eager loading on the okay. show before. Something that uh, is a common pattern that you have with ORM uh, stacks is that when you retrieve an entity, there may be a set of related entities that you also want to retrieve. You know, if I'm retrieving a customer, maybe I also want to get all of the orders that go along with that customer. Right. So there are a, a series of different patterns that you can follow. You can either do eager loading is the idea that, that at the time you first query for the customer, you say to the framework, I also want to retrieve the orders, and it makes one query to the database and retrieves them all at once. Okay. And it'll do a join under the covers or something like that and bring them all back. Hierarchically. That's right. Yeah. Um, Then uh, there's also what we would call uh, explicit lazy loading, which is where you retrieve the customer, and then maybe you go to a particular customer's orders collection and you explicitly say, please load those orders now and then you can enumerate them. And those two options were both available in the first release of the Entity Framework. But there's a third option that a lot of people uh, also want, which is uh, called implicit lazy loading or deferred loading. And the idea is I retrieve the, the customer, and then when I enumerate the orders collection, the system just automatically figures out that it hasn't yet loaded the orders and loads them for you right then. And the main thing here is to, to minimize the wait for the initial customer fetch so you can start displaying something. Well, yeah, there's actually a series of reasons. One of them is that you want to minimize the wait on the customer fetch. The, the second uh, thing is it may be that you're going to run some business logic and decide whether or not you're going to want right. to process the orders. Uh, and then the other thing is if you're really trying to make uh, very separate layers in your application where some parts of your application are aware of the persistence and some parts are not, you may not want to have to make the call to load the related orders up in the UI layer of your app. You may want it to just happen automatically. And only when it's needed. Why load that data if no one's going to use it? Exactly. Now, it, there are there are different viewpoints, and, and one of the things that we're trying to do with, with this release in the Entity Framework and, and across the framework in general is be able to support a variety of different application development styles. Okay. Uh, and some people will say, I never want to use implicit lazy loading because... When I do a query, it's going to make a round trip to the database, and that's going to have security concerns and performance concerns, and I want to be very explicit and know when and where that happens. Right. And that was certainly the viewpoint that we were kind of coming from mostly in the first release of the Entity Framework. But then there are other people who are at the opposite extreme, and they say, hey, you know what? That framework is just supposed to take care of that stuff for me. Why should I have to worry about it? And we want to support those folks as well. And so we just added an option in the in the object context now where you can where you can switch on or off the the deferred loading. I got a question for you. Is there anything in the entity model that isn't serializable that you might wish it was? In other words, entities raw data serializable, mm-hmm. but is there anything that are there any restrictions there? Any gotchas? Sure. Um, one of the things that that comes up fairly frequently is that when you're building a, a two-tier application where you're just writing code that's in one tier talking directly to the database with the entity framework, um, the system will automatically keep track of your entities and and any changes you make to them. And then when you do uh, save changes, it'll automatically know how to persist that. But if you start introducing additional tiers to your application, you want to build a 
a three-tier application with a web service or something like that. Yeah. Um, the entities themselves are both, uh, you know, binary serializable, they're XML serializable, and they're data contract serializable. So we make lots of different options for moving the entities across the tiers. Nice. But the object context, which has the object state manager that keeps track of those changes, is not serializable. So there's not a, a built-in, super simple way to take your changes, carry them to another tier, maybe make further changes to your objects and keep track of them, and then bring them back to the mid-tier and persist those changes. And why is that? Is it because of the constructs you're using in the context that aren't serializable? Is there something holding you back from that, or do you not need it? Well, I think I think the real reason um, has to do with kind of the scenarios where you might want to uh, serialize that and carry that around. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to really design a service that's that's a good contract for your multiple tiers? Hmm. So we purposely didn't make the state manager serializable because it's a little bit dangerous to be able to take that context and um, and remote it as one big bucket of any data that you might have put in it. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's very convenient to be able to take a data set and put it on a web service and remote it around. But when you do, that data set is a bag that could hold anything. Yeah, and there's nothing to keep someone, from, uh, you know, uh, who was uh, unscrupulous writing a client to your service from uh, taking your new order and adding in a record to change your salary and sending it up to your service. And if you just take that blob of data and just say, okay, you know, adapter, persist all those changes, you may get who knows what effect on your database. So. Yeah. One of the things that's a it's a common kind of dilemma when you're building these uh, ORM solutions that go across tiers is how do you add uh, enough flexibility in the infrastructure to make it easy to carry those things around and accomplish those scenarios while still helping uh, the users to make the right sets of decisions about how they build their services and where they do validation and and how they define that contract. So. One of the things that we uh, we spent a lot of time actually thinking through and, and discussing and designing uh, issues around this for the next release of the Entity Framework um, because this is probably the, the number one bit of feedback we get from customers is that they want to write into your applications and it's just harder than it should be in the first release. And so um, we did a series of things to, to help there. The first one is we went and changed some of the basic APIs in the object context to make some of these scenarios easier uh, so that it's now possible not only to be able to take a set of related entities that you brought from some other tier and attach it to the to the context, but then after you attach a graph of entities, you can go and, after the fact, change the state so that some part of your graph might be deleted and some part modified and some part added, and it's just a lot easier to accomplish those transitions if you want to write the code to implement those services. But um, yeah, But even that is a whole lot harder than the end user experience that you want to have, which is you want to be able to just write a service where you retrieve some entities and uh, serialize it to a client, make whatever changes to the graph there, and, and send it back and be able to very easily reattach that and be able to save those changes. Have we defined what the object context is? Uh, that's a good question. So the object context is this uh, facade object that's sort of the entry point where you get uh, access to working with the entity framework. It wraps up the connection for your uh, for your database as well as the state manager tracking, and it's kind of the stepping off point where you write link queries and and those kinds of things. So it seems to me that that there's only going to be one of those. I mean, do you really want to be able to move that thing around? Well, usually you'll you'll build one of them. For instance, if you're building a, a web service. You want the service to be as state-free as possible. Sure. And so in each call to the service, you're going to build a new context instance, carry out a few operations, and and maybe do a save or make a query or whatever, and then you're going to dispose of that instance. And then in the next call, you're going to make a different one. I see. Um, and if it was serializable, then you could persist it somewhere in the session or something like that. You could either persist it in the session or you could just send the whole thing to the client. Right. Right. right, and and at that point, you, of course, you wouldn't be sending the connection along. It would just be the change tracking information. Right, right. Um, but but like I say, there really are are some of these kind of dilemmas. In fact, 
a while back, shortly before the Entity Frameworks first release came out, I was kind of doing some research into this area, and I made a little prototype product uh, project that uh, was this entity bag that would effectively make a serializable version of the context. But I gave the project the code name Perseus because mm. I was thinking about this mythological story <laughs> where he's got the bag with Medusa's head inside of it. Right. And you never know what might pop out of that thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so instead of making the context just uh, serialize and travel across the tiers, we decided that we wanted to be able to make it easier to to play changes into the context that you might keep track of those changes some other way. And then we are coming out. It's not in the first beta, but it's going to be in a, in a web release that we're going to be coming out in a few weeks with a feature we call self-tracking entities. And so this is the idea that, that we um, code generate for you entity classes that are smart enough to keep track of themselves mm-hmm. and to carry their own little per-entities uh, serialization uh, of the of the change tracking information, and so that makes it a lot easier to be able to carry these things to the other tier. Maybe even that other tier is Silverlight, for instance, make some changes on them and then bring them back to the mid tier and and play them into a context and save. Okay, so you mentioned a whole bunch of new features that are in EF four. Let's uh, let's go down that list and and tackle those. This is sure. I think what people want to be hearing. Sure. So probably the, the first and most important one is to talk about uh, persistence ignorance or, or POCO classes. Okay. Um, and uh, in the first release of the entity framework, it, the classes that represent your entities, your customers or orders or, or blog posts or whatever it is, um, had to either inherit from uh, a class that we supply in the framework or implement an interface that we supply in the framework. And, and those... Uh, the interfaces basically allowed the class to keep the framework aware of changes that are made okay. um, and, and to keep track of a key property for, for the entity. But something that we heard from customers just over and over again was they wanted to be able to have more separation in their applications so that some parts of their application uh, can carry that entity data but not have any dependency on the framework itself. Um, Lots of different reasons for that. Maybe they want to be able to do this kind of remoting to something like Silverlight, which doesn't have the entity framework in the the framework that's available on Silverlight. Or maybe uh, it, they want to be able to switch to a different persistence layer in the future. Or you know, who knows what a, what kind of reasons for that architectural separation. So um, we put a whole lot of work into supporting these Poco classes, where you can just take any old class and um, and then describe a mapping from that class to the database, and the framework will either take a snapshot of the data in that class, and then when you make changes and get ready to save, it'll go do a comparison and figure out what changed. Or if you mark your properties as virtual, then uh, the framework can automatically supply a proxy that inherits from that class and does that change tracking to be a little bit more performant. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, WebUI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich AJAX and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So what does the sequel look like in, in a scenario like this? Well, the, the sequel that you get for doing the queries or for get doing the updates ends up being the exact same as what you would get in a in a framework v1 kind of scenario as far as 
you know, whether it's Poco or not really doesn't affect its SQL that's generated. I mean, the, re- the real magic here is this idea that your objects just have no idea that they're being persisted to the database. That's right. There's no code to that at all. It's, a, it's an aspect. That's right. You, you end up having to write some code in your application, that, of course, that's aware of the database. You know, that, that code is going to be what issues the queries, makes the call to save changes, those kinds of things. But the entities themselves don't have to have that awareness. And so, you know, oftentimes you'll build a solution where, you know, you have two separate DLLs, one that has all of your entities, and it's, it's pristine, and, and maybe even that DLL can run on .NET 2.0 or something. It doesn't even have any of these dependencies. And then you have another DLL that has your access code. Maybe you define a repository, or maybe you just use the object context. Um, and that's where your, you know, storage layer goes and your persistence-aware kind of things go. And right. uh, th- this allows you to do, you know, the, your traditional three-layer kind of architecture where you have UI and then you have business entities and then you have a data access layer, except instead of having to write the data access layer by hand and write your business entities by hand, you can move into a world where the data access layer is automatically supplied by the entity framework and maybe just a little bit of code you write to do some queries and things. And the entities... Are, can be your standard business entities, or maybe you can generate part of them, and the rest of them uh, you can supply in a partial class or something like that. And so it can dramatically reduce the amount of code you have to write by hand to accomplish those scenarios. And I, and I guess the other side of this, of course, is I want to use stored procedures. I want to craft my own code for all of this persistent stuff. You know, how much control do I have there? So you can you can certainly go on a whole spectrum of things. You know, at at one end of the spectrum are these cases where you say, I absolutely want to have control over everything and having a framework that, you know, materializes objects for me uh, or does any of these queries for me is, is, doesn't give me the control I want. And that's fine. You know, ADO.net is your friend. Uh, You can then move a little bit farther down the path and say that you want to use something like the entity framework uh, to sort of create your objects and maybe keep track of changes to your objects. But your queries themselves are all written using stored procedures, and your updates are all written using stored procedures. Right. And in this kind of case, you don't get any benefit from link uh, because you're just calling a stored procedure and you're going to get whatever you get. Um, but, uh, but at least the framework can manage, uh, you know, change tracking it can know, uh, you know, you can have stored procedures for your updates and deletes and inserts, and it can know when to call them for you automatically. You just configure that mapping. Um, or you can move a little farther down the spectrum, and you could say, well, I don't need to use stored procedures for all of my queries, but I do want to have views so that maybe I can enforce some security or those kind of things in a view in the database and use stored procedures for my updates. Uh, but I can still do a link query on top of that view. Or then you can go all the way to the extreme where, where the framework will generate all of the SQL dynamically for you. I suspect that, uh, you know, as the technology continues to mature, we're going to see more and more scenarios where customers start out in the, in the last scenario that we described where it's all dynamically generated by the framework and do a lot of their application development in that sort of cleanest, most productive fashion. And then, uh, once they get enough of their framework, up, you know, their application up and running, they can go do profiling and find where there are performance bottlenecks. And if there's some small percentage of the app where the SQL being generated is is not the most efficient, or whether you want to, where you want to play some tricks uh, under the covers, you know, you can write a stored procedure just for that one query uh, or that one little piece. And and that kind of a hybrid solution is probably the the ideal one. Uh, I guess this is a, a good time to, to mention that another place where we've done a, a ton of investment in in this release of the Entity Framework is in the nature of the SQL that is generated. Um, and, you know, anytime you have a system where where queries are being generated against the database, there's tons of room for optimization. And so we put a, a lot of effort into that optimization. The first few rounds of improvements uh, showed up in Beta 1, and then we have a whole nother a uh, series of improvements that have been uh, that have already happened since then, but will just have to show up in in the next uh, public release of of .NET four. Okay. Because yeah, beta one's out in the wild now. So is this stuff is all implemented already in beta one? Yeah, all these features that I've been talking to you are in beta one. 
Uh, the only thing that, that, I, that we've talked about that, that's coming after Beta 1 so far is just a few more of these SQL improvements. Um, well, I, I take that back. There, uh, there are actually a, uh, two different kinds of trains of things that are coming after Beta 1. Um, one of them is the, the core product that will ship in .NET 4, and, and that's where we have these extra uh, improvements to SQL. That's also where we're going to add support for um, foreign keys in the model, which I, I can describe in a minute. Um, but then the second, the second kind of train of things that are coming uh, after Beta 1 is what we're calling a, a feature CTP release. And uh, basically, there was a set of functionality that we knew we we really wanted to get out to customers in this time frame, but just couldn't make the Visual Studio train in time. And so there's a there's a small list of additional features that we're going to do web releases that kind of track a little while after uh, the betas and things, and then will be available by uh, on the web at about RTM quality at the time we RTM, but they just won't be in the box. And then it'll roll into whatever the next release is after that to be officially in the product. Okay. And and the self-tracking entities is an, is one example of, of something that's going to be in that uh, that web release. There were concerns, and I use that term loosely, uh, early on about the manageability of EF in in far as the source code control is concerned and building packages for deployment and all that sort of stuff. Do you want to address some of that, Danny? Sure. Um, you know, there there are some, some complexities. Certainly, when whenever you have uh, a large set of configuration metadata that uh, that you have to describe, you know, declaratively alongside your solution, and it's complicated enough that you want a visual designer to do it. Uh, source control for some of those things is uh, uh, is not super great. Uh, right. We di- we did put some effort into the first release and and then some follow on effort to make sure that we try and you know always serialize things out in the same order and those kinds of things so that when you make changes in the designer you know you can go look at the the metadata in a in windif or something and it's not awful uh but you know the designers are only able to do so much right um there's a there's a second uh, there's two two additional pieces that come up related to this that that are going to be helping in the in the upcoming release um one of them is this idea of model-first development. So this isn't so much right. about the source code control, but it's about the deployment issue. Um, and the idea that you can design your model, in, you know, create in the, in the designer uh, my entities and my relationships and inheritance structures and all the different things that I do, and then not only generate classes from that, but also generate the database. Um, and so that allows you to to sort of use a different style of development where you're coming at it from the from the entity design first as opposed to coming at it from the database design first which is uh you know what was easiest to do in the first release and you know in the second release you can do it either way uh and that database generation is is very very configurable we have a, a windows workflow uh that has standard activities that you can customize and then we use uh templates to generate the sql that produces the database and so you can customize those templates um, so that's one piece that helps kind of with that deployment management uh, side of things, that you have these different styles. But the second thing is particularly around this source control and how do you, how do you manage the, the changes. Uh, uh, another feature that's going to be coming in the web release, in addition to the self-tracking entities, is something we call code only. And it's the idea that uh, particularly if you're writing POCO classes where you write your own entity classes, it may be that you don't want to have any XML that describes the mapping or any of those kinds of things. Instead, you want to use sort of a more of a fluent API or maybe an internal DSL, if you will, um, to describe the mapping you have between your classes and the database. And, uh, and particularly when you put these two things together, you can get a scenario where you can maybe write a series of classes uh, that describe, you know, just just go into the editor and start building out your classes that describe the data that you want to store. And then uh, you can call one API that says create a database that will persist those classes. Right. That was my next question. Uh, and as long as it's sort of a one-to-one kind of relationship that follows sort of standard conventions, it'll just go create a database for you. Or if you want to have a different mapping because you already have a database or you know you want your database to be a different change, a different shape, you can call API methods that 
that do the describe that mapping in code instead of in a separate XML file. Okay. Uh, and then and then of course you source control that the same way you would code uh, for anything else. Right. And uh, the the first sort of web release of this code only feature has uh, only very minimal control over that mapping. It's a pretty much one to one kind of relationships. But we have been doing work, and, and in the later uh, web releases, we've got some really cool ideas around using something based on link to have a very compact syntax where you can specify uh, mapping to all different database shapes where you just have to specify the places where it's different from the conventions. Hmm. And you can use a really nice uh, link syntax that, that you don't have a bunch of strings, so you can use refactoring on it and all of that. It's, a, it's a really excited about the way that's going to look. Cool. Yeah. So, shall we move on to the next uh, sure. Are you done talking about that? So, so we talked about uh, persistence ignorance, and then and then we kind of went on this uh, track about database generation and those kinds of things. I, I think the next kind of thing that would be interesting to talk about is this topic of code generation. Right. So, in the in the first release of the Entity Framework, the most common pattern is that you you build a model that uh, is your entity model from your database, and then generate classes that represent those entities. And that class generation was done using the code DOM. And the idea there was, you know, we've got this technology where you can describe in code the shape of classes, and then it'll output either C-sharp or VB code and so on. The problem is the code DOM is, as it turns out, a really bad approach for this. <laughs> oh. Uh, it It's just not very flexible. It's very difficult. It was very difficult for us to write the code generation using it. And most importantly, it's very, very difficult for third parties to customize that code generation. And and these classes, after all, are the entities. And many times, they're kind of like the heart of your application. You want to have good control over the way they look. Right. So we decided to move to this technology that's actually been in Visual Studio for a few releases now, but not super well-known, called T4. Um, which is this templating engine. And basically the idea is that you have a template that describes in a file something that looks kind of like old-style ASP code, where it has a mix of control code and, a, and output things. And the output looks a lot like what's going to come out, so it, it looks like the shape of your entities. And the control code just goes in and reads from our APIs the sh- the list of the entities and the properties on each of those entities and so on and and sort of loops over those templates and 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 outputs the code. And uh the nice thing about T4 is well two things. One is that we can just supply a template that generates a set of classes and you can easily go in and modify it if you want to have an extra attribute or you want to use a different naming convention or or implement some other interface on your classes, you can just go do that. And the second thing is because these templates are just a simple source code file, we can actually have a whole library of them and have different styles of code generation. They could be supplied by us or or by third parties. Huh. So third-party folks can build plugins, essentially, to this code generation engine. Exactly. And those plugins could could change the way your classes generate, or they could generate other artifacts besides. So you could have, for instance, one part that automatically generates your entity classes and maybe another part that automatically generates a set of UI on top of those classes or or a report or who knows what other thing. Um, and it, it's a very general purpose kind of mechanism. And we've already built entities that will, uh, you know, templates that will generate entities that look a lot like the default code gen from the first release, as well as templates that generate POCO classes that um, you know, just are the simplest possible classes that don't have any dependencies on the framework. Ones that automatically generate uh, interfaces for mocking and fake implementations huh. of those so that you can have a real nice test-driven development scenario where you test your entities without having to go to the database. It's just going to an in-memory fake implementation. Yeah. You know, a whole range of different kinds of things. And and the story around editing those templates, you know, it's, it's really pre- pretty straightforward except for one unfortunate fact, which is that Visual Studio doesn't have a built-in knowledge of the file format for templates, right? for uh-huh. T4 templates. Um, the good news is that there are at least two third-party companies who have released plugins for Visual Studio, one of them already available on, on the Beta 1 of VS 2010, that give you a nice you know, syntax highlighting and IntelliSense experience over editing those templates. Now you start to see that 
uh, you get out of just a simple relationship of object to data and into this concept really of entities in, in all the different directions that that might go in. I can see this in, from a modeling perspective, from a documentation perspective. I get all of that just because you're able to extend from the concept of an entity. That's right. Once you have an entity and the metadata that describes interesting pieces about that entity, suddenly you can reuse that entity definition and that metadata for a whole bunch of different things. Or even if you don't use the same model, that same form is usable in different places. And, and that brings us to another place where we've invested a lot this release that's a little less visible on the surface, which is building the underlying support so that in a future release, reporting services can build on top of the entity framework and have that same set of tools for designing your entities and mapping your entities to the database and then run reports against them. Right. Do we have uh, source control? Well, uh, source control, you know, like I say, you, you can use source control over your classes. You know, it's just a standard Visual Studio project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're using the, the XML uh, metadata, the declarative metadata from the designer, then that also will work with source control. It's just that if you make significant changes on the design surface, it may have, a, you know, a, a complex-looking diff. Uh, but if you use the code-only experience, then you can get a, a you know, source control that's just code like every other bit of your code. Right, okay. Yeah. So uh, let's see, kind of going down the list. We were talking about POCO. We talked about T4. We talked some about the interior APIs. Uh, I kind of hinted at a little bit around the testability. Um, in addition to being able to use T4 to, to generate these uh, classes that automatically do fakes, I kind of snuck in there this little point about an interface, which is that we created a new object that inherits from our object query class that's part of the entity framework that's where you initiate your queries called object set that allows you to take a not only a, a, a base query but also be able to add and delete and attach objects of that same type. And the object set implements an interface I object set of T and the the key point is that makes it really easy to build a context that has an interface that represents kind of one simple contract for all of your uh, access to the database, and then it's really easy to swap out multiple implementations and in memory one compared to the real database one and those kinds of things, and that makes testability a lot easier. Oh, cool. You sort of mentioned off the cuff there the foreign key associations in uh, the latest yeah. version. Yeah. So what's that about? I'm a foreign key kind of guy, so <laughs> I, care, I care about this. So uh, in the first release of the Entity Framework, the idea of the model was that we're really trying to abstract you away from the way that the database uh, looks and give you a very object-oriented view of the world. Right. But typically, in an in a object hierarchy, you're, you don't really have foreign keys. You're going to have references to other, other classes or collections of other classes. Um, and so that's the way that the model worked uh, in the entity uh, entity data model. And when you took a database and you mapped it to to your model, basically the foreign key properties were not available on the entities because they were just the underlying storage for uh, associations, you know, references or collections. The problem with that, of course, is that uh, a couple things. One of them is oftentimes there are scenarios where you don't really want to have to retrieve the other entity just to be able to modify uh, that relationship. So I have a customer, uh, I mean, I have an order, and I know the customer ID. Why should I have to retrieve the customer object just to set it onto my customer reference? I just want to set the ID of it uh, and those kinds of things, especially true when you're going across tiers. And, you know, it's that much more overhead to make another web service call to go get the related entity and so on, as opposed to just carrying that key property around. Um, the second thing is there are some really uh, kind of obscure but unfortunately very significant things around the way change tracking works, and especially uh, optimistic concurrency. And when we had separate relationships, uh, instead of foreign key properties, if you modified an entity the optimistic concurrency check for that entity wasn't sufficient because the relationship was separate. And so additional optimistic concurrency checks had to happen on the database. And that just led to a whole lot of uh, complication yeah. in some scenarios. So so we added a feature. It's not in beta 1, but it will be in the final release, um, where you can define a relationship and just say, hey, you know, 
there is this foreign key. I know it lives on this side of the of the relationship in this particular entity, and just display that foreign key property as a part of the entity. Uh, and then if I change the reference, fix up the foreign key. If I change the foreign key, fix up the reference. And, and the framework automatically handles keeping all of those things in sync. So you can think about it in terms of the references and collections, or you can think about it in terms of the foreign key properties. Cool. And, uh, really, that's uh, it, that turned out to be one of the bigger projects we worked on in this release, is figuring out all the right rules to get how all that fix-up happens so that as a consumer of the framework, the hard part is all done. You just sort of set whichever thing you want to think about, and it magically fixes everything else. And uh, uh, in the end, I think it makes for a, a lot better experience. But it was a little hairy in the design meetings there for a while. Uh, other features. So we talked about uh, we've talked about a lot of the stuff. SQL generation improvements. Um, oh, I guess uh, one thing that is uh, pretty interesting is the ability to expand the set of functions that are recognized in link. Uh, one of the things that is an interesting uh, problem when you're translating link queries to database queries is that, you know, you write link queries in terms of just using parts of the .NET framework. You make some function call, and then the the link provider, in this case link to entities, has to go say, "Hey, can I figure out how to take that function average and turn or you know starts with or whatever it is and turn it into something that I can call a function on the database and there's a certain set of those well known kind of functions that we translate, and then if you call other things, maybe we don't know how to translate them or particularly if you have user defined functions in the database. We certainly don't know how to translate anything to that to those. Uh, so we added uh, a feature in EF4 where you can put a special attribute on a method in one of your CLR classes that indicates that the signature of that method it take you know it has a particular name and it takes an integer and returns a float or whatever it is um, can be used in a translation to a particular function in the model that gets mapped down to the database. So if you have your own custom function that, that computes, uh, you know, whether a, uh, a customer is a gold-level customer based on how much sales they have or some, you know, complex formula, you can write a little method in, in uh, the CLR that represents that same thing. And then when you write your query in link, you can just say, you know, where uh, customer.goldlevel equals true, and that gets translated into that call and remoted down to the database to that, that user-defined function that you have. Hmm. You know, this is sort of dancing along a topic that I've I've bumped into a couple times with ORMs, which is, you know, sort of when not to bother with ORMs on a particular piece of code. I mean, generally, we try just trying to save labor, but uh, I think we I've run into issues where folks have said, you know, this was a really performance-sensitive piece of code. It had very specific rules around it, and so we just skipped all that and went bare metal. Are, are you dealing with this much? Do you see that situation? Does, does EF tolerate it? Um yeah, we do see that situation occasionally, and we've certainly done a lot of design work to allow you to write solution, you know, applications that are s- sort of a hybrid. Right. Um, you know, uh, I very frequently run into cases where customers will say, I just know that that thing is going to be slow, so I'm going to optimize it now. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to use an ORM there because I'm just sure that that SQL won't, won't work so well in the database. Right. Um, to which my reaction is the same reaction I give to junior developers on my team, uh, uh, which is go run the profiler and then come back and let's talk again. Yeah, go get some proof. Yeah, so frequently, you know, my experience in doing perf work everywhere I've ever been has been that the thing that I just know is the slow part isn't. Right. It's some other thing I didn't even think of yet. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we really try and encourage people to say, you know, go do the profiling, figure out where the slow part really is, and then go optimize that. And then we tried hard to make sure that the entity framework had the appropriate hooks to make it possible to do that. So, right. you know, it's built on top of ADO.net. You have direct access to the connection. You can write a single transaction that involves queries or updates or whatever in the entity framework and some other call that you make directly to ADO.net. Um, we've even added, this is another place where we added something in entity framework for uh, is the ability to, on the context, call a very simple API that just says execute a store command or or go execute a query, and as long as the shape 
that comes back matches a particular type, we'll go ahead and build those object types for you. So instead of using the SQL we generate, you can supply your own very fine-tuned SQL for that one query that you need. And so that should be very seamless to be able to mix those things in. So, Dan, where do we get the bits? Uh, that's a good question. You have to go to uh, my blog and look up, you know, those MSDN download URLs that have, a, you know, eight characters at the end that's some hexadecimal or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if you download uh, VS2010 Beta 1, .NET 4 Beta 1, then you'll get the new, uh, new Entity Framework, both runtime and, and designer bits. Awesome. Uh, we're just about out of time. Is there anything that you'd like to mention before we wrap it up? Well, I'll just uh, throw a shout-out to, to my son. He's a pretty avid .NET Rocks listener. All right. What's he's, his uh, name? His name? His name is Keith. He's a, a 13-year-old, and he's a major C-sharp programmer. Rock on, Keith. Rock <laughs> on, Keith. Try some VB.net. It's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for sharing all this great stuff, and and uh, keep on pumping out the good stuff. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.